0: welcome to the fintech one-on-one podcast episode number 371 this is your host peter renton chairman and co-founder of fintech nexus today on the show we have a fascinating interview i conducted on the keynote stage at fintech nexus usa on May 26th, it was with Matt Harris, a longtime partner at Bain Capital Ventures. The title of the talk was how VCs are navigating today's turbulent market. And Matt had some very interesting things to say about what happened in 2021, what's happening now, what he thinks is gonna be happening in the next 12 to 18 months. He doesn't pull any punches. He lays it out in uh, pretty stark language as you will see here. It wasn't all about that though we also spent some time chatting about his Forbes article from last year on the future of money which I thought was an astounding piece he takes us you know 20 30 years into the future and how money is going to look and he has some fascinating ideas there anyway it really was one of my favorite conversations I've had in a long time and I hope you enjoy the show
1: Okay. See you, sir. Yes, good to see you. Thank you, Bo. Okay, so we had a slide on the opening remarks yesterday that said, We live in interesting times. Indeed. We do. And um, for people who, there might be a handful that don't know you, why don't you just give a quick intro first what you do? Sure. Uh, Matt Harris, a partner of Bain Capital, where I run
2: the FinTech practice. Started at Bain Capital in 95 left, started my own early stage venture firm in late 99 to focus on fintech, came back 10 years ago when fintech became more of a thing. Delighted to be here, not, not for the first time.
1: No, not for the first time indeed, and we're delighted to have you back. So maybe you can give us your take. It's been an interesting couple of years in fintech, particularly if you're a venture capitalist. Yes. Why do you give us your take on the state of the fintech market today? I think if you take it from the perspective of a customer, it's fantastic. Right. I mean, the
2: solutions are amazing. Maybe too good in certain cases. (laughs) I think they've gotten ahead of ourselves in terms of various propositions, particularly in lending and prop tech and some of the more balance sheet intensive Mm -hmm. propositions. But even if you think about B2B solutions, the amount of investment that's gone into it, the delta between the value propositions and the elegance of the design and the functionality of the products that consumers and businesses are enjoying today versus where we were five years ago. It's amazing. That said, you know, as human beings do, we got a little over-exuberant about what all that is worth uh, <laughs> in terms of equity valuations. And sadly, now we're kind of reaping the harvest
1: of that over-exuberance. Right, right. So I remember you were on a webinar with Steve McLaughlin and several other, like Nigel Morris and a few others, right. very early in the pandemic. And you said that you know, we're not going to do deals via Zoom. That's just not going to happen. And obviously that did happen. But do you think that was a contributing factor to this sort of crazy time we had last year where term sheets were coming out in days and, you know, there was a lot of pressure to really compete with all the other VCs out there because there's so much money available.
2: There's a number of really important points this question brings out. The first one is that you should take everything I say with a grain of salt because because about half of it ends up being wrong. So keep that in mind. Um, The second is, though, that Zoom was contributed to what became, I would even go so far as to say, a toxic situation in terms of how funding was raised, how much of it was raised, and at what valuation. And that actually, sadly, the victims of that toxicity in some part will be the investors, but actually will be the founders who raised all this money at these prices that they now have to live up to and have hired all these people, as we're hearing, day in, day out now, some of whom will have to be let go. And I think it was highly problematic. I mean, I'll just say for my part, I took 2021 off entirely. Didn't do a single deal.
1: Didn't do a single deal? Yeah. I did do
2: some via Zoom in 2020, as you point out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I actually think Zoom is, the thing that Zoom did for us was turn our business global. Right. The last deal I did was in London, And the next deal I do will probably be overseas as well, just because we can now spend relatively intimate quality time with cross-border founders. So that's a great advance. It's great for the world that funding be distributed more evenly geographically, both within the U.S. and globally. But it did, like most great
1: technologies, it empowered wonderful things, it empowered excesses. Sound like you were looking from the sidelines at your fellow VCs, clamoring for deals at ever higher valuations, and what did you think? Well, the first thing to note is that I wasn't
2: generally looking at VCs. I'd love to hear guesses from the audience, but if you had to guess what percent of all the venture capital last year was invested by VCs, I suspect you would think a majority, but right. no. Right. 25% of all the dollars invested last year were, were by people who call themselves a VC or we're trained as VCs or anything like that. 75% were for people who discovered this new lovely activity. <laughs> you know, look, I have no pride particularly about VCs. I don't think we're perfect at what we do, but we do do it for a living. Like there's gotta be something to it, right? I mean, right. we're not like cardiac surgeons, but it's also not exactly the perfect activity for tourists or amateurs and that came to dominate our field of endeavor. Right, well
1: eventually you have your track record that sort of, you know, speaks for itself in many ways. Again,
2: right? I'm speaking on behalf of my profession, we should all be very humble, <laughs> humble about our work. We are deeply imperfect, but there is a little something to it. There is right. a little something to it. And so the fact that this explosion in our asset class was majority driven by people who'd
1: never done this before,
2: I right. think should get our
1: attention. Right. That's a really good point. So what do you feel like today? You know, there's obviously the public markets. Every fintech stock pretty much is down, some down a lot. And do you look at the public markets as a good barometer for where private market valuations should be? Or what's the interplay between the two?
2: I'm now on three public boards. And my gut is that the current valuations and what happened say more about the public markets than they do about the companies or about right. fintech. You know, just sort of living through it. Like, it was dogmatically true for most of the last 20 years that unprofitable companies shouldn't go public, mm-hmm. that the public markets were, you know, maybe good at a few things, but evaluating hyper growth, hyper dynamic, unprofitable businesses, definitely not. <laughs> right. And so, you know, if you look at the Russell 5000, you know, which is this index that tracks small cap stocks, there's 3,200 companies in it. Because the public market universe has shrunk so dramatically, they can't even fill the Russell 5,000 anymore. That's right. The number guess. of public companies got cut in half over 20 years. Right, because there's less than 5,000 public companies, yeah. right? Yeah. So that happened for a reason. It happened because the public markets are broken. The majority of the money is passive indices. That means right. very small sets of funds control the price, and everyone else is just a price taker. And so when those, those funds, those people get excited, things go like this. And when they get unhappy, things go like that. Right. Nobody is the big middle majority tempering ups or downs. So I don't know if or when I'll ever take a company public again, but that whole system of funding companies and valuing companies is totally broken both ways, Huh? and yet it... it does influence the private markets.
1: Right, right. So then when you invest in a private company and it goes public now, do you want to exit that company right then because it's now in a broken market? Well, first, I don't want to do it. I
2: mean, again, judging by my track record in Fireside Chats, I'll probably be doing another one in six months. But I think we should be very careful about what types of companies, what growth rates, what level of predictability, what level of profitability we choose to go public. But it's really just a financing event. And fundamentally, if I think I want to exit, if my goal would be to sell the stock, then Ethically and otherwise, I shouldn't take the company public. Right. You know what I mean? I'm foisting it then off on widows and, and orphans and, you know, retail investors. That's not yeah. how we'd like to do business. So the answer is no. We don't look to sell, haven't historically looked to sell. I'm not interested in selling out of any of my positions. But I think it is true for venture capitalists that it does start a clock, right? We don't actually get paid to manage public stocks. Right. And so we have to have a plan to get liquid. And, and that, honestly, is not a happy pressure to have because companies are on a journey. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to be able to, at my own discretion, working closely with the founder, pick the time to exit based on where they are in the journey, not based on some public market dynamic. Right. So right. it's just another reason for me why it gets in the way of me doing my
1: craft the way right. I want to do it. Would you say now, then, the venture capital... Are we back to a more normal system where it's not just clamoring for term sheets and and now it's a bit more like it was pre-pandemic? Well, we're
2: back to something. We're back to something. (laughs) It's not pre-pandemic normal. Because pre-pandemic normal was not historical normal. The kind of like 20-year average valuation for a software company is five or six times revenue. Pre-pandemic, it got to 10 times. Peak of the market... Of the public universe, it got to high twenties, right? Revenue multiple, and then in the private markets, got to a hundred times revenue,
1: mm-hmm.
2: often four or more, cause... or more. I think the fundamental question facing all of us is, what is normal now? Right. And in my experience, you know, kind of history doesn't repeat; it rhymes. It's it won't look just like anything that we've been through. We have to draw on more fundamental analysis to say what is a fair price. Fair to the founder, fair to the investor. Where does that market settle? And we have to do it in the context of a lot of broken companies. Right. The hangover will correspond to how good the party was to a certain extent. And <laughs> this is a really good party. It was, it was a good party. It was <laughs> 12-year-long, yes. extremely good party. And the last two years of which were... Like I said, I was watching from uh, outside the window, yeah. but it looked pretty so we're fun. doing Jaeger shots <laughs> mid at three in the morning. <laughs> so I think that tells you what you need to know about the next 12 to 18 months, which aren't going to feel normal. They're going right. to feel like a reaction, and a lot of the people, the actual human beings whose job it is to make these investments, are pretty busy worrying about
1: the stuff they did last year. Right. So that's a big, big factor. Right. So then if there's a founder in the audience um, who's, you know, thinking they need to start on their Series B or Series C or even Series A, what advice do you have them today that would maximize their likelihood to get funding at a, at a valuation everyone's comfortable with? Facts and circumstances matter
2: a lot. Hard to give general advice. But I do think we have a couple months here where there are st- still some business-as-usual activities going on where, you're, you know, people are going to have a sharper pencil on valuation. But if your last round wasn't crazy, you do have a chance to do an up round, you know, because you've made progress, et cetera. Right. And so the iron is cooling pretty rapidly. I would go to market immediately and target people who know you already, because by the time someone gets to know you in the new normal timeframes, the the market's going to get worse before it gets better. So right now, there's a four, six, eight-week window where you can get up rounds done by new investors, and I suspect... By midsummer that won't be happening anymore, which will lead us to the more likely scenario is your insiders, where you say, Hey folks, we'd prefer to be raising money in twenty twenty-three, ideally twenty twenty-four. We the company are doing the right things to make sure we get there, but in fact we need five to fifteen million or two million or eighteen million or whatever it is to get there in good order. And that will be good for all of us. Right. So do you really want to lead an inside round right now? No. But should you? Yes because that is the right answer to preserve your old equity and this new money will be quite valuable because we're going to do it at the last round price or wh- you know whatever the structure is. So that's a very constructive conversation that you want to have now in parallel with the new outsider conversations. Because in two months, that'll be the only conversation that's available to you and your insiders will
1: be more scared then than they are now. Interesting. So then are you saying like the latter half, so the second half of this year, there's going to be very little new rounds with new investors being done in an up-round kind of environment? Yeah, seed and A will keep happening. You know, right. the
2: people have funds to put to work in new companies, but nobody wants to deal with messy situations. Right. This is the thing. Like, this isn't happening yet, so we'll get to some optimistic parts in the remaining six minutes, <laughs> but I would say just to like, hit a nadir for this talk what happens in the mind of an investor is they look at the company and they say okay you've raised 60 million dollars now you're raising a series B your last round valuation was 350 but really you should raise 20 now at 100 post that's really what this looks like in a normal time because the last thing you did doesn't count it was <laughs> okay. totally crazy it was 2021 everything right. was nuts but you're a 5 million dollar revenue business 7 million dollar revenue business it should be 20 at 100 or 30 at 150, but I don't want to spend time on that as a new investor. I don't want to have to break that news to you or go talk to your existing investors who are going to have to cram into a much smaller percent of the equity, right. give up their preference, do all these horrible things. Like, I want them to come to that conclusion on their own. Right. I don't want to have to go to my likely my friends who are on your cap table right. and say, oh, by the way, that company is great. I love that founder. She's awesome. We want to get involved but you have to write it down and do all sorts of horrible things. I don't want to have that conversation. I'm going to work on the
1: clean one. Right, right. So founders have to do that work themselves and boards, et cetera. Okay, so let's switch gears. I want to um, go to a, a different topic completely. And I want to revisit the last year, you wrote a Forbes column on the future of money. And you talked about decentralization, decentralized finance. We've obviously had a lot of tumult in that space in recent weeks. Do you still view what your thesis from last year, maybe you could just repeat it briefly, and do you still feel it holds weight? The nutshell thesis is that over like a 50-year period
2: starting 20 years ago, financial services is going to be entirely reinvented. The first chapter was just simply about analog to digital. You know, here's your bank account, but it's on your mobile phone kind of stuff. Here's your loan, but it's available on the web. Now we're in the embedded financial services phase, where people are going to buy and experience financial services through software they use every day, both consumers and businesses. We're just in the first or second inning of that. That's extremely profound. And then the final chapter will be the way financial services are manufactured, not just the way they're presented digitally or purchased and experienced through software, but the way they're manufactured will be done in a decentralized way versus currently, which is wildly centralized by banks, by Visa and MasterCard, by insurance carriers, et cetera. So I will note I gave myself fifty years, right? Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> I've got,
1: I've got it's only 20, been, it's less than a year <laughs> since you wrote it.
2: I've <laughs> got twenty-eight years, used to be twenty-seven, used to be twenty-nine. Yeah, I totally full conviction. I right. mean, I really everything in my life has been an extremely bumpy road, and this will be no different, this path to decentralization. Right. And by the way, not least because governments hate it. Yeah. This one in particular is going to be a nasty tussle. The incumbents always hate all of this, but founders beat the incumbents over time. I'm fine with that, but right. you know, now we're playing against the referee too. It's going to be rough, Right. but you know, we raised a crypto fund last year. We've been investing in crypto for the last nine years. It has been one of the most fun, interesting, and rewarding chapters in my investing life, and it remains just that. I think the talent in the space, mm-hmm the
1: inarguable logic of it is only growing more and more compelling. So what is inarguable about it? What is inevitable about the move to decentralization? Well,
2: the argument for analog to digital that founders made was like, you know, in 2009, 2010, like, download the M&T Bank app. Look at it. It's garbage. Look at my app. It's fantastic. <laughs> and that was true. I mean, look, I was chairman of Simple. Like, I... I'm an old school neobank guy, but right. it was pretty thin, pretty thin in terms of like. By the way, the M and T Bank app is awesome now. Right, it's like perfectly acceptable if you're going to market against an incumbent based on the quality of your app, and that's why you look at Lemonade stock or you know the whole like we're digital we're better thing was never a durable competitive advantage against the incumbents. Well, it is competitive against them is to remove them from the market altogether. So we have a company called Compound. It's not even a company, actually. It's really a protocol where you can lend and borrow money post-collateral, entirely managed programmatically, and they charge 10 basis points for extremely complex loans. And yes, they have breaches, and they go out time, and it's messy. But all startup activity is messy. What's interesting about it is that it's actually disruptive. Hmm. Token-intermediated, protocol-driven lending and insurance and payments via stablecoins are a decade away from prime time, but it's just, to me, the lack of comparing their 10 basis point NIM to the 300 basis point NIM of a bank, that's actual disruption mm-hmm. in a way that sort of the peer-to-peer lending folks had in mind, but had
1: no chance of, they just did a different version of centralization. right? Never decentralization. Right, right. Okay, so then maybe we can close with, you could paint a picture for us, if you will, of how you feel like, you know, you can go out 29 years if you want. What what do you think it's going to look like in the finance spaces? What are the big banks going to look like? Who is going to be the the winners? Well, as I said to my partners in our offside this week,
2: there's not going to be a fintech practice at Bank Capital Ventures in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Because... It's like an internet practice. It's an ingredient. What we all do is an ingredient in building an amazing software company. Right. And so banks will either have an important role enshrined in regulation to orchestrate and custody assets, or they will lose it. But they will not be manufacturing products. And so, whether they can, on the strength of their brand and mostly on the strength of their government relations, keep themselves in the mix, which I suspect they will, most of this work will be done by technology. Mm. And the winners, ultimately, will be those software companies that realize how to best incorporate these financial services, which at that time will be manufactured decentrally, and so therefore actually be easier to incorporate into code. And so I think most of us are going to innovate ourselves out of a job. Right. And I'm here for it. Okay. (laughs) Well, on
1: that note, we'll have to leave it there. Matt, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. My pleasure. Really great to see you. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you.
0: Wow. So much to process there, so much to unpack and to think about. Obviously, the next 12 to 18 months are going to be challenging in fintech. We're not going to see anything like the uh, environment we had in 2020 and 2021, where huge up rounds, massive valuations just became the norm. And if you weren't raising several hundred million dollars, you really weren't at the top of the heap or anywhere close to it. But, you know, there's still innovation is going to continue to happen regardless of valuations. And those companies that have raised a good amount of money hopefully will be able to tough out this winter, still innovate and create new products and be just fine. The good companies will be just fine. The companies that probably shouldn't have raised money at the valuations they did there's going to be a culling of the herd. There'll be lots of down rounds, there'll be acquisitions that will happen. But I wanted to just touch on his predictions for the future, because I feel like when I hear Matt talk about this, I get super excited about where finance is going. We've had a great last decade or so with a huge amount of innovation in financial services, but the next decade is going to be very, very different. And I'm excited to see what happens. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening.